0: It saved the Southern economy. It saved the South. Just to think, an individual who's ostracized, experienced racial animist, who's dealing with all kinds of prejudice, looks beyond himself to say, I will even serve my enemies. That is Mm -hmm.
1: extraordinary to me. Welcome to Life with God, a Renovari podcast a place for unhurried and thoughtful conversations about interactive life with God. I'm Nathan Foster, and today we continue with our series, on trusted Voices from the Past, a page in the great historic conversation about the growth of the soul. Today, we get to talk about George Washington Carver with the prolific Renaissance man, Show Baraka. She was a recording artist, public speaker, author, academic, and thought leader. But first, a quick story about George Washington Carver from my father, Richard Foster.
2: Well, George Washington Carver was a great scientist in our history, and uh, he was a Christian, He often prayed and he called God, Mr. Creator. And one night there at Tuskegee Institute, he goes out into the woods and he prays. And this is what he prayed, Mr. Creator, why did you make the universe? And he listened and this is what he heard. Little man, that question is too big for you. Try another. (laughs) So the next night, he goes out and he prays, Mr. Creator, why did you make the human race? And he listened, and this is what he heard. Little man, that question is still too big for you. Try another. And so the next night, he went out and he prayed, Mr. Creator, why did you make the peanut? And this is what he heard. Little man, that question is just your size. You listen, and I'll teach you. And you may know that George Washington Carver invented some 300 ways to use the peanut. <laughs> As a scientist, you see, he took God's guidance. Isn't that wonderful George Washington
1: Carver was born into slavery in what was suspected to be 1864. George's father died before he was born, and at a week old, he and his mom and sister were kidnapped by night raiders. George was eventually ransomed back for a racehorse valued at $300. His family was not. The horrors and mistreatment of growing up black in the South in the late 1800s, served as the backdrop for a man who would become one of the most prominent scientists of the early 20th century. Carver's scientific discoveries and advancements in crop rotation led Time Magazine in 1941 to refer to him as the Black Leonardo. In 1896, Booker T. Washington, the first president of the Tuskegee Institute, invited Carver to head its agricultural department Carver taught for the next 47 years. It was a real joy to learn more about Dr. Carver in this conversation with Show. So why do you love George Washington Carver?
0: Oh, that's, that can take three podcasts to explain, but I think <laughs> it's not even so much what he did. And oftentimes we fall in love with people's activity. You know, that's how we find out people. We find out who people are because of oftentimes times, what they do. And then you get to discover the types of individuals they are. It's more of what people said about him and um, how he used his giftings for the benefit of other people. There's a lot of talented people in this world throughout history who populate our pages. But, you know, the struggle with extremely talented people is that they're oftentimes terrible human beings. <laughs> and <laughs> it seems to be that George Carver was not that type of person. He seemed to be someone who was deeply concerned about the wealth and well-being of other folks, but also he deeply loved the Lord, maybe in a more mysterious way than some of us, but mysteries are there sometimes. And so I love him for his identity. I love him for his activity, and I love him for his legacy.
1: Yes. When did you discover him? I can't
0: tell you exactly when I discovered him. I'm pretty sure I grew up in a very, very pro-black household, so I'm sure I heard his name and I had to do some research on him when I was young. It, it never really stuck. But when I really, really fell in love with him, when I became fascinated with him is when I was a student at Tuskegee University. And he himself was a professor. Um, he was over a department at Tuskegee Institute at the time. And there's a museum on the campus, and we would oftentimes walk past the museum. And then one day I just decided just to go in. And what's fascinating is that I I didn't learn much about him, the person. Well, let me change that. I didn't learn much about him as a servant of God while at Tuskegee. I learned more about his exploration with the lagoon plant, soybean, et cetera. And I learned a lot about his character through... I guess you can say mythical or apocryphal stories that were told from people who've heard about, he did this, you know, this is the kind of person he was. But then later, as I began to dive into his readings, or not his readings, but writings about him and his quotes, and just studying Black Christian history, I learned about his faith. And that, to me, just took it over the top. It went from like, oh, he's an eight in my life right now, to now he's like an 11. (laughs) So... (laughs) So, yeah. And I didn't even know I can turn that knob to 11, but it goes to 11. <laughs> what, what was it about his character that moved you, inspired you? He's an extremely humble man. Now, some people will say that was because of his physical disposition because he was a frail human. He was a sickly boy growing up. He was born into slavery. And because of his health and his frailty, he couldn't actually work in the field. And so his owners, if you will, had him doing more I guess you can say mental exploration and creative things. And that's where his love and appreciation for art and science came. And he always kind of maintained this fragility, if you will, into his adult life. And he spoke with a very high pitched voice. So there was a lot about him that you can say was unassuming, you know, from his body to his voice. He
2: spoke like this. He sounded like this when he spoke. <laughs>
1: really? Yeah,
0: it's, it's, it's <laughs> hilarious. And so an individual who, I guess you can say, especially in the late 1800s and early 1900s, who's not in the field, who doesn't work with their hands, you know, this is manly hour. And so you're not beating things into submission with tools. You can probably operate with a certain humility. And I'm assuming that played one part of it. But I think also... His fascination with nature, like he had this really interesting relationship with nature where it says he spoke to flowers, he spoke to plants. And it's hard to not operate with a level of humility when you see all things as truly living beings and you have a respect for those living beings. He had this quote where he says, anything will give up its secrets if you talk to it. (laughs) And I think that's true for humanity as well. You know, you talk to someone long enough, you'll learn things about them, even that they didn't intend to reveal. And I think he truly entered into this relationship with plants in that manner. Like I'll talk to these plants. And when I say like talk to them, people say he literally talked to these things (laughs) like strange. He was a very strange man, very strange, but like most geniuses and savants, very strange. And so with him, there was that component. So you have the fragility in his body, you have this relationship he has with nature, but then also you just he just loved the Lord. and he loved God. He recognized that there was a structure to creation, and he played a role as a servant to God's created nature, or created things, and how he could use those things to cultivate better lives for people. And so when you have when you, you Take that amalgamation of things and put it together. You, It's hard for you not to be somebody who is a humble guy. If you go to Tuskegee now, you can actually go to the building in which he lived, and you can go and explore his room. It's a little humble space. And so there's this hotel and conference center, which is on the property, and you would have different people who would come and visit. You know, Tuskegee was a major spot. Booker T. Washington himself was a very notable, influential individual. You know, you would have wealthy white folks and influential black people who will come through and spend time on the campus. Well, it's said that one day George Washington Carver is standing outside of the the building and some wealthy white folks come up and they think he's the door hop, so they give him their bags and ask him to take him to a particular room. The story goes is that he did it without <laughs> without <laughs> explaining who he was. And, and then they find out later who he was. And then, you know, there's apologies and mea culpa's and whatnot. But he was just that kind of person, they said. That's
1: good. And then, I mean, I'm assuming, you know, his talking to the plants, right? He heard stuff, right? Like his insights, quite amazing. Well, I mean, he,
0: uh, shoot, he had over 300 I guess you can say, inventions from the lagoon plant and the soy plant. So he heard something. (laughs) He he heard something. I need to go talk to some things to see if I can hear something. (laughs) But yeah, he he heard something. And
1: uh, it's quite fascinating. His faith, what was notable for you about his faith?
0: First, let me say this. There's a tombstone. right? On this tombstone, there's an engraving, and the engraving says... A life that stood out as a gospel of self-forgetting service. He could have added fortune to fame, but caring for neither, he found happiness and honor in being helpful to the world. That, to me, speaks volumes of the kind of belief he had. For someone to put on your tombstone that you lived the life of self-forgetting gospel service, I think this is what Jesus calls us all to do. What you believe about God impacts how you work and impacts how you serve and live your life. And what's fascinating to me is that this is a man, as I said earlier, who engineered over 300 different, I guess you can say inventions or ways in which you can manipulate different plants. But yet he said he never patented any of them intentionally because he said, these are God's creations. This is God's innovation to me and who am I to withhold these ideas from other people. Hmm. And to wow. me that is unheard of especially in today's culture to think that whatever i create is mine. Yes, i can maybe acknowledge that the lord gave it, but the lord gave it to me and so therefore i have every right to take ownership of this which honestly to me is is, is the inverse of what jesus teaches us. It's like things that are given to us are gifts and gifts are never intended for the person who inhabits that gifts. It's always beneficial for other people. And I think George Washington Carver saw a relationship with the Lord. And I think it's important how he grew up as well to be kidnapped. Oh, I didn't mention this. He was kidnapped um, when he was a child, uh, but he was rescued and returned back to, I mean, his owner, which (laughs) (laughs) obviously is another form of captivity, but you know, returned to his owner, he was sick. He was I think the first black professor at Iowa. He just has a a legacy of dealing with obstacles, a legacy of of having to overcome difficult situations, but trusting in a faithful God and in turn recognizing that when I trust in a faithful God, I will offer all that I have unto people as A humble servant. And oftentimes, when the Lord in present day helps us to overcome extreme obstacles, we need to learn how to yield that charity unto others in a way that is like Carver. Another example of godly character that I see from George Washington Carver is this is a man who, you know, came to prominence in the early 1900s in the South. While the Southern economy is crumbling and failing because of its overuse of the cotton plant and trying to just only extract cotton and sell cotton, it's, it's crumbling, it's falling. And he himself, a black man said, look, let me help you guys out in this economy by showing you different ways on how to use other plants so that we don't have to only and solely depend on cotton. And it saved the Southern economy. It saved the South. Just to think, an individual who Is You know, ostracized, experienced racial animist who's dealing with all kinds of prejudice, looks beyond himself to say, I will even serve my enemies. That is extraordinary to me. So that's a godliness that I think can be (laughs) copy and pasted a hundred times.
1: Yeah. What do you think his influences or his community that helped shape him? to be able to respond to life in such a way?
0: Well, this I don't know. I mean, I I know some of his tangential relationships he's had, but I can't speak authoritatively on this. But I I can only think about his mother, who was um, a woman of faith, and other people who, I guess you could say even potentially the plantation owner was possibly an individual of faith. And, you know, slave religion was one, though it may not have been directly attached to great theological exposition, there was a knowing, there was a knowing that is unprecedented in any other faith tradition that I can ever experience to know that I may not ever see freedom on this side of heaven, but yet and still I will sing songs I will tell stories and I will live a life that is lined up with the Lord to me, testifies of a great faithfulness of an orthodoxy that no other person who can explain the gospel backwards and forwards can shame. And to me, that is what shapes individuals like George Washington Carver. And then you go to Tuskegee, Tuskegee for all intents and purposes is pretty much like most universities during that time. Not only a, a school for practitioners, but it's a religious institution as well, in a sense that is based on a lot of Christian values, etc. It has chapel services. It's tied to teaching men not only how to be bricklayers and artisans, but also how to be good Christian men. And so he's in that. He's in that company. He's around those folks. He's in that space. Like I said earlier, I think there's a bit of him, his understanding of nature, which God speaks to him, is very personal. Like we all have our quirks, our integral secrecies on how we engage God. And some of us are embarrassed to publicly communicate what those things are. But this is a, an individual who speaks to God in a very mythical and mysterious way. There are a lot of faith traditions out there or Christian traditions that celebrate mysticism in a way that may be shunned upon another You know, spaces like a Protestant space or whatever. But the reality of it is, is that God speaks to some of us uniquely. And our relationship with God is unique. All of that is a nice little just spangled tethering of how someone knows the Lord. And it even influenced his relationships in a way that he didn't disparage or show prejudice in who he connected with. Because he had a relationship with Gandhi. He had a relationship with Ford, with Henry Ford. Uh, he would work with people because he knew that in his blessed, I guess you could say, vocational skills came the blessing of other people. Very Jeremiah 29, you know, bless the city, because in that blessing is your blessing.
1: It's always baffled me, and I wonder if you could help speak to this a little, of how slaves adopted the religion of the oppressor. In one sense to me, it speaks to the truth in the gospel, that there's something there, but what what are your thoughts on how that came to be? That's a very heavy question. I think
0: there is something to the overall, I guess, ethos of the truth in itself will reveal itself to people, no matter if it's coming from a oppressor, if it's coming from dreams, if it's coming from the Lord. We see in Romans one where he says, you know, this is extreme, but he says, Nature testifies of of its creator. And I think in a lot of ways, what we see here is that slaves came, and some people have documented that this is people who came from particular land, especially West Africa, that there were things that they believed, that there were certain traditions that were brought. And when Christianity was preached, it wasn't so far off from what they already believed or knew in their heart. And some people will even go as far as to say that that was the remnants of Judaism that that, that flooded into the West. And so there are mm-hmm. similar words, but I'm no expert, so I won't get into, too deep into that. But that's one sense, is that there's some sort of similarity or there's some sort of streamline of what they already believed. Because Christianity had great influence in Africa and averse to what a lot of thinking is out there is that Christianity was introduced through the slave trade. That's not true. You know, you have countries like Ethiopia who've been pretty much, pretty much Christianized since the first century, et cetera. So that's what... her fathers? Desert fathers? Yeah, desert fathers yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we see that that influence made its way south and east and west. So anyway, that's one. But the other thing is, is that once slaves began to read and investigate the book themselves, they were able to not only get to know God personally, but they were able to turn and be prophetic unto their slave masters and to challenge the theology of those individuals. And Phyllis Wheatley is one of those individuals whom I love deeply. She's an individual who was brought over at a young age and was highly learned, became published as a teenager and was fairly... I guess you can say docile in her aggression towards the slave trade. But then as she grew and explored and dove deeper into the gospel, became more antagonistic towards slavery and those people who propagated the idea of slavery while being Christians, especially. This is a natural progression, I think, that we see not only in American Christianity, but we can even see this in the scriptures. That the natural progression within society when there is a gospel message is a progression towards freedom and liberation. It's like you Mm. cannot sustain this idea of slavery and call yourself a Christian. We see this with Paul his preaching to Jews and the Gentiles with Philemon and Onesimus. And so it is to make us all equal. And slave owners would intentionally take certain chapters out of the Bible in order to Continue this idea of, of oppression. I think it's a supernatural thing, ultimately, and to me, that's what makes this the gospel itself so subversive, but also offensive to so many people. Because it's like, how could you believe in a religion that basically was the pillars, in a lot of ways, of the transatlantic slave trade? And I say, well, I believe in a God who brought about the manumission and the abolition of the transatlantic slave trade. That's the God I believe in.
1: And I think in a sense, we owe a lot to black folk in the U.S. for carrying the kingdom. Absolutely.
0: I would agree. I would say that there's a there's a sense of in which they carried it. They carried not only orthopraxy, but they carried an orthodoxy. And oftentimes when we talk about this idea of justice, they did not exercise a faith that was detached from justice. It was a faith that was, God is a provider here and now, and he will be a provider in the future. Oftentimes when we talk about great black luminaries of the past, we only talk about them as historians and activists or revolutionaries. We don't talk about their Christian fidelity that is tied to it, like the Harriet Tubman's and the Frederick Douglasses, And uh, even with, I mentioned Phyllis Wheatley, we just see her as a great poet, but Her literary work was steeped in gospel and Christocentricity, and it does us a disservice when we do that. And I think there's a subtle racism or an intentionality in keeping them detached from religion as well because we don't want that challenge to our lovely white forefathers who only promoted a gospel that was beneficial for their self-interest in a lot of ways rather than seeing people who approached the faith from a holistic perspective and we see that recapitulated in a lot of ways in the 60s with the civil rights movement and other great african-american movements as well
1: that's super helpful in terms of your own life are there things that you carry values you have practices that you directly learn from george washington carver
0: I just want to try to be someone who lives a self-forgetting life of gospel service. So I think about as someone who's told that he's talented and who may be gifted. It's like, well, what do I do with this information? How am I using it? The things that the Lord happens to bless me with, the ideas he happens to give me, do I use those for my self-interest? Do I use them for my own status and success? So... George Washington Carver has this quote that I I like to think that I try to live by. And I think it's helpful for anybody who's listening. He says, How far you go in life depends on you being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and strong. Because someday in your life, you will have been all of these things. Mm. So you think, like, (laughs) just think about individuals who are not tender to the young, people who are not compassionate to the age, who are not sympathetic with the striving or tolerant of people who are weak and strong. I think that's good that he says weak and strong, because oftentimes we'll be tolerant with the weak, but we won't be tolerant with the strong. Because one day you will be young, you will be aged, you will be trying to strive, you will be somebody who's weak and both strong. You will probably misuse or abuse every area of that life. And you want somebody to be sympathetic and graceful to you. And yet, Oftentimes when we talk about justice, we want to leash out justice, but we want grace on us. Like we'll wield the sword of justice, but we don't want it you know, yielded on us. And so I think for me, I just try to just think about in what circumstances or situations in life am I not being compassionate? Am I not being tender? That is just one quote that he has, one posture of his life that I think influences me very deeply.
1: I love that quote. I mean, it's really doing to others. Absolutely. But it puts skin on it. Absolutely. Right. It's like there's a tangible way to
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: So if people want to learn more, is there some books that you'd recommend for people to check out?
0: Well, there's a book that I have called Essential Writings of the Black Church. And there's a whole, you know, section that's dedicated to quotes from G- George Washington Carver, some of his writings. And uh, that's one good resource for like some of his first hand lectures and teachings and quotes. But then there's another book, The Man Who Spoke to Flowers. It's more of a uh, biography about him, his life from a gentleman who spent mm-hmm. an extraordinary time with George Washington Carver and traveled with him. Those are two. And then I just, I went to Tuskegee, so visit his museum if you ever are passing through the Auburn-Montgomery area. Tuskegee's right in between those two cities. And you can... Uh, Visit his museum. Um, it's said that he and Booker T. Washington had a very tumultuous relationship. <laughs> okay, um, so I, you know, I, I do a little reading on the periphery from folks like Washington, George uh, Booker T. Washington. So you can learn some of the shadow of him as well. He said he was difficult. Booker T. said he was difficult to work with, and, and I can only imagine because
1: Booker T. was difficult himself. So. <laughs> <laughs> But. I love how all these historical figures interact, yeah. and you know, thinking how they influenced and sharpened each other. Yeah. Uh, hey, show. Tell me if if I can. What have you been up to with your writing, recording music, anything I can share with people?
0: Yeah. So most of my writing energy right now is going to a musical that I need to be finishing up within the next couple of weeks, but it's it's set to. Hit the stage in Houston at a theater called 80 Players at the George. So if you are interested in seeing a musical that I am writing, just frequent their website. It should hit the stage sometime no later than the fall. I'm excited about that. I will give the title, but I think the title may change. But as of right now, it's called A Midnight Society. So okay. that is one thing I am potentially going to work on a new album once... I get done with this musical. I'm in a writing mood, and I, I just love. I'm I'm writing some fiction as well, but that's more slow motion than anything. It's just when an idea comes, I sit down and give it some attention, and then when I feel like I've expended that am- amount of energy, I just move on to something else. <laughs> mm-hmm, so I'm not mm-hmm. necessarily forcing it, but
1: there's a purity in that. Yeah, there's a there's a
0: freedom in that. I'm there. trying, I'm trying. So I'm about to launch a podcast called Good Culture. Should, depending on when this released, it'll probably be released. Yeah. And I have a, a little YouTube channel as well, Good Culture. And what I'm doing is just trying to just introduce people to things that I think are exciting and areas in which people are doing some good things and create good conversation. But it's also a lot of levity. So some humor, some philosophy, some prophetic voice, things of that nature. Yeah. So that's what has my time right now. Thank you.
1: And thank you for your time and sharing about your friend with us. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Nathan. I appreciate it. And that was Show Baraka talking about George Washington Carver. Encourage you to check out Show's YouTube channel and his podcast, both titled Good Culture. Show's sixth studio album is titled So Many Feelings and it's recorded with Vanessa Hill. Also, back in episode 234. June 6, 2022, I interviewed Sho about his book titled, He Saw It Was Good. I'm Nathan Foster, and you've been listening to the Renovare Podcast. We're grateful for all of you who helped make this work possible. You can support Renovare and this podcast with a tax-deductible gift at renovare.org. Renovare is a Christian ecumenical renewal effort, offering resources and experiences to help people become more like Jesus. You can find a collection of thoughtfully curated articles, podcasts, webinars, online classes, as well as information on events in our institute on our website, renovare.org. This podcast is produced by Brian Morricon, who also wrote the opening song titled Be Kind. And until next time, be well, friends. Be well.